0: Good morning, um, I pardon. I am Ryan Jacobson and uh, I get to be the missions coordinator here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. Um, I actually just spent a week in Costa Rica, uh, just outside of San Jose on one of our mission trips. Um, if you've never been to Costa Rica, I absolutely, highly, highly recommend it. It is absolutely gorgeous. We, uh, we get to spend seven days in a place that seems like it's nothing but rainforests. Uh, while we're down there, we work with an organization that's called Strong Missions. And what Strong does is provide mostly construction services to the local churches and to the uh, community around those churches. Uh, We've worked on local parks. We've worked on schools. We've worked on homes for church members. And then we uh, we also get to work on the churches themselves. This year we installed the flooring for the second story at one of the local churches and we worked on the walls in the kitchen and repaired walls in the sanctuary and uh, things just general things like that around this church. What this new area and this new second story is going to be used for in this church is what's really at the heart of strong missions and what's at the heart of the reason that we go down there. This area will be used to feed about 70 kids uh, six days a week. Um, After we finish with all this physical labor, we actually get to go and hang out with some kids that are in feeding programs like this. We go to a place that's called Los Guido, and we've been in Los Guido every year for the last four years. When we go there, we get to feed these children and then we get to sing and dance and play with them for a few hours. And it's by far my favorite day of the the trip. This year, we also visited a new uh, new place called La Carpio. Uh, Los Guido is is in very bad shape and La Carpio is probably about 20 times worse than than Los Guido is. La Carpio is home to about 44,000 people and it sits on the edge of a landfill. This landfill actually provides the main source of income for La Carpio. The people will go out to this landfill and they'll sift through it and they'll try to find items of value, try to find things that are worth selling or fixing. Um, This church uh, in La Carpio is the only church there out of 44,000 people. So there's this one single church, but there are eight active gangs in La Carpio. So it's not exactly a safe and clean area to hang out. We, we go in the morning. The gangs are usually still asleep in the morning. Um, being on these trips, I also get to have front row seats for some amazing stories of healing with our own team members. I've seen brothers reconcile. I've seen fathers and sons grow together, and I've seen opportunities for husbands and wives to be able to grow and heal. I'm always surprised when I get down there. And and it happens every single time I get down there and I expect to see that the hardships that poverty and violence have had on these people. But each time and again, it it really takes me by surprise when I see it uh, face to face. But I am absolutely blessed to be able to take these teams down here and to be able to see the transformation, not only on the part of our team members, but especially on the part of the children and the people of Costa Rica. I would ask, please, that you pray with me as I pray for these people that I've met down there in Costa Rica and for our future missions there and everywhere else in our mission fields. We bless you, Lord God. We thank you so much for the opportunities that you've given us, for the resources that you've given us, that we can go share these things with these people. Father, we thank you for the love that you put in our hearts. And that you put in our hearts to the point where we can't contain it, but it has to be poured out. Father, I pray that that your presence is known by the people of Costa Rica this morning as they gather in your name as well. I would pray that your presence is present here in this building. It is present in each of our hearts. I ask you, Father, to continue to give us hearts of service. I'd ask you that you... Would continue to call new people out of our people. Call new people to go on these mission trips. Call new people to go serve in Costa Rica or Mexico, Africa, or here in San Antonio. Father, we see so much need in this world, but we know that you have the resources. That you are the one that can provide for every single one of us. So, Father, we bless you. We thank you. And we love you in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. So, so far in this series that we've been doing this summer of encountering the healing power of Jesus, we've covered many different kinds and types of faith and the types of faith that really heal people. We saw that the faith of four friends can heal a friend of theirs. We've seen the faith of a Gentile centurion that absolutely amazes Jesus. We've seen faith in false idols overcome. We've seen faith in rules and regulations overcome by compassionate love. We've seen the faith that uh, makes a man continue to tell a story in a Gentile region so that Jesus returns to this region, the whole land has heard of him. And we've seen faith that's been born from an understanding and a love of the text of God. This week we uh, explore another aspect of faith that I think sometimes we avoid. Today we'll read from Mark chapter 9 verses 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if, if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So the most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up and he was able to stand. When he entered into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. These are the very words of God. So immediately before the event that we see described here in our verses, Jesus has been up on top of a mountain. He's taken with him Peter, James, and John. As they're up there, Moses and Elijah suddenly appear. Jesus starts to glow, and we hear a voice from heaven that says, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. In a regular stroke of brilliance that we see from Peter, he says, maybe we should build dwellings. Maybe we should build these sukkahs for these three prophets. Jesus responds to Peter, sorry, Peter, wrong again. This event is uh, known as the transfiguration, and the full glory of who Jesus is is revealed here, but only to a select few. On coming down the mountain from this transfiguration, Jesus and the three disciples that went with him are confronted with a crowd of people arguing. And in this crowd are the remaining nine disciples. The crowd is asked by Jesus, what is going on? What's the source of this argument? And a single man steps forward. He explains to Jesus that he's brought a son to be healed. However, when he arrived, he only found these disciples. But he does remember that these disciples in this day represented their rabbi. They should be able to carry the authority and the power of their rabbi. So he does ask these disciples for help. The description of the torments that this boy faces are actually just absolutely horrendous. Gnashing of teeth, seizures, foaming mouth. He's unable to communicate the tortures that he faces. The demon even tries to kill him by casting him into a fire or drowning him. Uh, One of the commentators I read said that in this act, this demon is trying to destroy the very image of God that that is found in this boy. The disciples try to help, but ultimately they fail. We have this picture that Jesus is up on top of this mountain with these three disciples being glorified, revealing the glory of who he is. But meanwhile, on the ground, the rest of these disciples are failing to live into this mission. They've been able to cast out these demons before, and they've been able to heal people before, but this time they fail. This absence of Jesus seems to have given them a lack of confidence, seems to have brought in some sort of doubt, brought some kind of doubt into their mind. They try, and they fail. They probably began a little bit arrogantly, remembering that they've done it before, but they try, and they fail, and their doubt grows. I can also imagine that the father of this child, by the time that he reaches his disciples, um, is desperately frantic. Imagine his disappointment as he gets there, and he wants to bring his son to this amazing Jesus that he's heard so much about, but he realizes that Jesus is strangely absent, that Jesus is not there, but all that remain are these nine boys that follow Jesus around. But he does remember that the disciples represent the rabbi, and so he asks these disciples for help. They try, and they fail, and this man's hope probably fades. His desperation is growing and growing, but there seems like there's nothing, nothing that can be done. When Jesus finally arrives on the scene, the disciples have to be embarrassed. Jesus chastises them, calling out their lack of faith, and this has to hit them pretty hard. The father of the boy has seen the inability of the disciples to affect anything. And so he translates this inability that he sees into the disciples onto Jesus himself. And he says, if you can, if you're able, essentially he's saying, I've seen the ability of your inability of your disciples to change the situation. I have no greater faith in you to be able to do anything either. But I'm desperate at this point. If you can do anything, please. There's even this hint of accusation in the man's voice. Jesus has just been glorified by the father in heaven. But in the eyes of this father here, he's reduced to nothing but a farce. The hope for divine intervention that this man carried with him has been replaced with this feeling of divine absence. Now, for me, I began to follow Jesus about five years ago. The first year of my life following Jesus was absolutely amazing. I received so many blessings. I found community. I found people that were faithful and life-giving. I had experiences that were absolutely life-giving. But at the end of this first year, I was sent into a desert. My life before that had had this purpose and had had this plan, but every single shred of that life was stripped from me. I sunk into a place of no identity, a place of no purpose, and I felt that the God that I had devoted myself to for that last year had absolutely abandoned me and that he had failed to notice that God was not present in my life. How could he be? The very foundation of how I had built my life was shaking to the ground and it was all that I could do to continue to stand. That absence of God lasted for a full year, and during that year I did all of the things that I was supposed to do. I still went to church. I still interacted with the faithful people around me, and I went through all of these motions, but I didn't really feel anything. Every day I prayed to a God that I felt had abandoned me. I alternated between begging this God for his presence to return to me, but then also telling this God that I no longer needed his presence and that I felt that that presence had never really been there in the first place. Jesus' words as he hung from the cross impacted me in that time, but I wouldn't say that they brought me comfort. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was gone, and there was nothing that could be done about it. My story, of course, isn't the same as Jesus' story, but I identified with his experience. Jesus had just been at Gethsemane, and he had declared that he would sacrifice everything for this God. But then within a matter of days, he's rewarded with nothing but a feeling of forsakenness. A feeling that he's been forgotten by this very God that he's given himself to. I'm pretty sure that most of the people in this room have had an experience like this. If you haven't yet, then I'm sorry to say that you probably will. It seems to me that if our Messiah... Is not immune to this feeling of divine absence than none of us are. I uh, read some Mother Teresa this week, and in this Mother Teresa, in the writings that she she uh, put out there, I saw this this idea of divine absence. She wrote, "Now, Father, since 1949 or 50, this terrible sense of loss, this untold darkness, this loneliness." This continual longing for God, which gives me pain deep down in my heart. Darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. And then it is that I feel he does not want me. He is not there. God does not want me. Sometimes I just hear my own heart cry out my god And nothing else comes The torture and pain I can't explain Through this doubt and pain mother Teresa continued to serve the people of Calcutta for years She's one of the pillars of the faith that we celebrate one of the people one of the contemporary saints that we absolutely adore And yet she acknowledged and she experienced this idea, this feeling of divine absence. As I thought this week, I began to realize that maybe this feeling of divine absence is not something that should be ignored or something that should be repressed. But something that we should rather face and perhaps even at times embrace. If Jesus felt this this experience of divine absence as he's sitting there on the cross, then I feel like maybe our call to participate in the crucifixion is a call to experience and feel these same things things that Jesus felt. Jesus faced this absence and continued his mission. He didn't shy away from it and he didn't save himself from it. Rather, he embraced it and went to his death. Perhaps when we're in the midst of this doubt, this loneliness, this desperation, Perhaps these are the moments that we actually stand closest to Christ as He's on the cross. I've realized that, in fact, the faith that I have today would not be anything close to what it is if I had not gone through that time and that season in the desert of doubt. It is, however, this very act on the cross that we celebrate as Christians, but we tend to separate ourselves from it. We soften the blow and we turn to easy explanations. We jump ahead and we go straight to the resurrection. The resurrection did happen, and I bless God for that every day. But the resurrection only happened after the death. It's only after that divine absence was encountered that we come to the resurrection. The resurrection does, however, declare that in the face of this death and then in the face of this dying, in the face of doubt and uncertainty, in the face of poverty and violence, that we can still embrace this world as the good place where God has placed us. That we see God continue to embrace to this day. So let's return to the scripture. The father says to Jesus, if you are able, please have compassion and heal my son. Jesus responds by asking that that faith finally be renewed. All things are possible for those who believe. The man acknowledges immediately, I believe. But he also acknowledges the other side of the coin, help. Help my unbelief. Jesus finally rebukes this demon, but one more hope-shattering event occurs. The boy seems to have died. The father has to face this last peace. Death has come, and God again seems nowhere near. But where Jesus is, this death really only comes so that the resurrection can follow. So this week, we explore what it means when nobody around has faith. The disciples are absolutely powerless. The father is desperate. The son seems to have no life left. But Jesus sees all of this, and he patiently works through it. He acknowledges that feeling of divine absence, and he lets us face it. But he does bring us through it as well. Every time that I go to Costa Rica or to any of the other places that we go for our mission trips, I'm confronted by so many things that seem to steal the life of the people there. I see st- Starvation, I see thirst, I see poverty, I see violence, I see disease. But the people in these places absolutely amaze me. They encounter these circumstances daily, but rather than let these circumstances overwhelm them, they're able to face them. They look beyond this death that surrounds them and they emerge on the other side with a life of faith that's really hard for me to even explain or understand. They are, and they've learned to embrace this death, to live through it, to grow into the resurrection, and be able to embrace the world around them. I'm going to invite Pastor McNitsky up to service communion, and as he's coming, please pray with me. Our dear Father in heaven, we bless you for these stories that you've given us. We bless you that you can embrace us even in the midst of our doubt. That even when we feel that you are not there, that you are. When we feel that there's nothing left to do, that there's nowhere left to go, that you're still there, that you're still leading us one step at a time. Father, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that is feeling this doubt, that's in the midst of this kind of situation, that they would have some sort of comfort, that they would have some sort of confidence to know that they're not alone. To know that even if they don't feel you, they can understand that there are those of us in this room that have gone through it. Father, we bless you. We praise your name. And we go in your name. Amen.
1: Pray with me. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for how you have worked in the life and the death as well as the resurrection of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we remember as we gathered this morning that in the night in which our Lord and Savior was betrayed, He took bread, and after blessing you and giving you thanks, broke the bread and gave it to His disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. When the supper was over, He took the cup, and after blessing you and giving you thanks, He said to the disciples, This is the cup of the new covenant. It is my blood poured out for you and many for the forgiveness of sins. So gracious and loving God, pour your Holy Spirit upon this bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ. Pour your Holy Spirit upon all of us that we would walk through all of our struggles and come out as the body of Christ redeemed by your blood. All this we ask in your Son's name and together we pray as he taught us saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done And I would remind you that communion this morning is by intention, which means the service will break off a piece of bread and give it to you and then invite you to dip it into the cup and thereby receive the elements of Holy Communion. And communion is open to all of you. I would invite you to come.